Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to CoinKite for supporting this show. To me, CoinKite seems much more like a bunch of Bitcoin geeks making cool shit than a formal company. This, however, doesn't mean they don't take their work seriously. Quite on the contrary, as these guys take more of an adversarial mindset to the products they develop than any other company that I'm aware of in the Bitcoin space. Their most popular product is the cold card hardware wallet, which has become an extremely popular method amongst hardcore Bitcoiners for self-custodying their Bitcoin. The most recent version of this product, the MK4, is out now with several new features designed to increase ease of use, introduce even more security features for multiple attack vectors, and make the degree of security which cold card offers more robust than ever. Thankfully, these guys also like to have some fun and tinker with some not-so-serious products, which has resulted in a personal favorite of mine, the Block Clock Mini. Whether you've begun orienting your life around block time, need to check an open dime balance, want to keep an eye on the Bitcoin exchange rate, or just get a kick out of watching Moscow time slowly trend towards zero, the Block Clock Mini has become a favored piece of Bitcoin paraphernalia and an increasingly less subtle way of signaling that you've become fully orange-pilled. To learn more about all their awesome products and stay up to date on what they're working on, visit coinkite.com. Let's do it. There we go. We're live. Uh, Robert, how's it going, man? Thanks for joining me for a chat today. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for reaching out. So I um, was recently having a discussion with Svetsky and your name came up and he said, you know, I got to listen to the podcast that you guys did. And I listened to the first one. And then in preparation for this one, I listened to the other. I think you've done three thus far. So I listened to the other two. And um, basically, I just found it to be a very interesting story. I was intrigued by some of the topics that you guys uh, touched on and kind of wanted you or wanted to expand on some of them further. So I thought, why don't we have a discussion and, and, and chat about some of it? Let's do it. Um, what, what came to mind as you, as you heard some of the um, topics we covered on the podcast. Uh, well, I mean, go for anywhere. starters, you've got a very interesting backstory or life story and, and, you know, with challenges and unique circumstances and that often uh, leads to interesting takes on all the other things that we, all of us confront in our life and questions around value and beauty and morality and, you know, all these different philosophical notions, which you, you guys touched on in your discussion. So, um, you know, I didn't have a particular, uh, well, I, I, I had a few things I wanted to touch, but maybe first, one of the things that I don't think you guys discussed, or maybe I missed it, but what is your Bitcoin rabbit hole story, as it were? That might be a good jumping off point for context here. Yeah, so um, that's actually a, a funny story. Um, I uh, really learned about Bitcoin for the very first time in about 2011. Um, when a friend told me that there was no chance Bitcoin would ever become anything. Biggest mistake of both our lives, uh, <laughs> obviously. Um, I didn't really think about it much until things, you know, the, the serious bull market in 2017, right? 2013 was somewhat muted. So 2017 was the big deal. I was um, not really sure of Bitcoin then. Uh, so I was looking at other cryptocurrencies. I got wrecked, of course. And then uh, in 2018, um, I met Robert Breedlove at a conference and uh, we had a great connect, you know, connecting moment. And um, he told me that he was uh, orange filled. You know, so we talked about Bitcoin and that was when it really started to dawn on me. And then very slowly over time, it, you know, it really clicked into place. Um, 
So what conference was that? That was uh, Summit. Uh, I owe them a lot, actually. Uh, um, but it's the the Summit conference. Um, they What's just, that? Yeah, they just gather a whole bunch of um, people that they decide are. Uh, I mean. Uh, they, I mean, I guess they're looking for, you know, they look for a group of interesting people and um, they could be everybody. So Esther Perel was there. Um, the founder of Blue Bottle was there. So, you know, could, they were like, everybody was there, right? Little guys, big guys, was all, they were all in the same place and it was just a, a party. So at one point they did a cruise and then everyone complained about, I don't know, the carbon emissions of a cruise line or something. So then they moved it to LA. Uh, <laughs> and that was, <laughs> yeah. And then that was... Um, that was a big deal until COVID. And then um, I actually haven't heard much from Summit since COVID. So I think that really shifted a lot of people's, um, you know, propensity or, you know, tendency to go to, to go to bougie conferences, you know? Right. So we're all at this like, yeah, bougie conference with uh, like net zero breakfasts, you know, that was the, that was it. But it was, you know, it was a really fun time. Uh, they did, they did some cool, uh, not just activities, but there were very, you know, my, I got a lot out of the spontaneous meetings with people. So it was less the, you know, and I think this is a general thing that I, I've noticed at a conference is I, I try never to go to the lectures and the talks, right? I, I avoid them generally. I go to maybe one or two. If my friends are there, I'll go. And then other than that, it's just spontaneous interactions, which have always been very rewarding for me. So that was what happened. And so you got, you just like, you didn't know each other. You bumped into each other randomly, started talking about Bitcoin and, and Robert laid some of his philosophizing on you it's different it's different actually no this is this is what happened we had a uh <laughs> we had a um uh an activity and it was it was um uh the name slips in my mind now but but basically it was that one of you sits in the middle and then two of you um speak into that person's ear like what each ear of that person and you guys just say like whatever spontaneously comes to mind so um it usually comes out to be good things you know like you're going to do great things or, you know, the, these are the impressions I have of you. And then I'll actually never forget this. Robert said some really, like, really touching stuff. I mean, it was really moved by it. You know, he was like, I think he said, motherfucker, you are going to be a star. Like you slay, you are going to kill it. He didn't even know who I was. And um, <laughs> so we all kind of went through that, went through the rounds on that. And then I went up to an after and I was like, oh, dude, you said some of the kindest things you know i've ever heard in my life he was like oh it did you know so we just started talking so then eventually we uh we got into that um so that that, that was that's the story that's how that right. that's how that played out yeah yeah and then since that time it's just been a furthering down the rabbit hole i'm i'm guessing yeah slowly but surely slowly but surely um, right. and you and I, you yeah. you're doing some you're contributing in some way to remind me of the name of the organization some yes. sort of policy There are two things I do, um, and then I preface this with essentially everything I I do in in a way is education. I've always done, in some sense, education. Um, So so this is there are two: the Bitcoin Today Coalition, um, which advocates for Bitcoin on the mostly on the federal level, but also on the state level with uh, legislators and regulators uh, about the you know virtues of Bitcoin and why geopolitically the United States needs to be on that sooner rather than later. Um, and then the other is uh, my first Bitcoin, um, which is uh, an education, you know, basically, in a sense, the same thing, an advocacy organization, but they, they, they educate um, students in El Salvador, so K through 12 students. Um, and for now, it's high school students, eventually K through 12, right? But um, they created, um, or I guess we, um, I, I helped uh, create the curriculum 
but we created the first um, high school certification program for Bitcoin that was mandated in a public high school in the world. So it's uh, expanding to multiple schools now. Um, there are other states in the United States that are interested. Um, it's a very exciting time. That curriculum is in is actually in demand uh, by other you know people. Just want to be able to use it in their classrooms. So um, so it's a it's sort of um, this is how I, I tackle it or how I talk about it um, politically. You know we're, we're I'm attacking or we're attacking uh, um, things politically from the top, and then we're attacking things um, educationally from the bottom. So advocacy has to go both ways. And eventually, you know, you have a fully um, if Bitcoin is a virus a mind virus of sorts, um, you want that in as many heads as possible, as quickly as yeah. possible. So the ones so, with, yeah, sorry, just the ahead. ones with, just quickly, just the ones with um, disproportionate power to, to make that virus spread, right? That contagion spread, who are the politicians and regulators, and then the people who um, are themselves uh, the people we want to convert, uh, as it were. Um, so those are the people at the, at, the, at, the, at the bottom of this poll, as it were, youth, um, who aren't essentially voters yet. That's so yeah. awesome. Uh, some of the guys involved with that initiative in El Salvador were in touch with me and telling me about it. And it's so awesome. And then I saw a few weeks ago that, um, you know, a bunch of Bitcoiners went down to basically be part of the examination process for the initial cohort. And they're like, you know, making sure that they can, you know, uh, use wallets and back and, and uh, back them up and re. Uh, you know, restore them and all that kind of stuff. And it was just super awesome to see. And I, I guess it went fairly well and they're going to be doing more of it. So, you know, I, I love that initiative. Um, what's your, you know, do you have a, a day job at the moment or? Yeah. So, um, so basically I, when I was young, I built a, an interpreting services company for the deaf and hard of hearing. Um, it's a family company and it's still around. So um, I sometimes fly out uh, to, uh, I, I, the Middle East, we'll just say the Middle East. Um, and I work there for, you know, just to make sure that there's interpreting services out there. So yeah. um, I do that. And then I also spend a lot of time writing. Um, it's a joy. Yeah, it's a joy. Awesome. Yeah, I've yeah. read some of your stuff. Uh, what's the name of your blog again? Oh, <laughs> you actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't touched that in a while, but uh, it was called uh, Inorganic Thoughts. That's right. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And you, I, I noticed that on your, your, personal uh, like webpage, you've done some interpreting services for Tesla and Facebook and maybe been in the all hands meeting with Musk and Sandberg and those sorts of folks. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. Was, what was that into, like? I know you said one day I'll write a book about it. So I don't know how tight lipped you you're going to be, but you know, tell me the juicy um, details. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'll, I'll say this. It's, it's um, you know, I think, I think being next to them or being, being among um sort of the, the tech superstars, uh, everybody wants to be around them. I find them, um, frankly, in a way, less interesting than, um, at least, you know, because I'm always dealing with their public face, right? It's not like I'm in a one-on-one -on -one, um, yeah. with Elon. But um, I think it's less interesting than um, being in juvenile hall for 14 and a half hours, right? It's, it, it just is. I mean, there's something about um, the experience of sitting there in a cinder block space you know like no no greenery uh from morning to evening and then watching people eat like you know powdered eggs i think it was powdered eggs you know and um just listening to the kids and talking about you know telling hearing their stories and and um um 
and then it, having that kind of jarring experience of being in that space, and then the very same week going to chat with, uh, say, Mayor Garcetti. Um, so you get, you know, like I, I say this, I say this all the time that if you wanted to be a politician, probably the best job that you could have is a is being a language interpreter first. And the reason why is because you're put in all of these places um, where you you have to really see how how society is, and you get to be a fly on the wall. People are their authentic selves; they don't care about you by definition. Like your only job is to not exist and like facilitate a message. So um, I got to see people for who they really were. And I got to see um, what we really are as a society. I mean, the, the amount of decay is, is shocking, right? Um, just the, the undercurrent. Um, I've seen, I, I, I've actually, I've been able to make this comparison, right? That um, I would rather have a child be educated <laughs> or be in juvenile hall than a special ed program in certain parts of the country, which I think is, is a pretty unbelievable statement, but I stand by it because the, some of the things I've seen in special ed programs, um, the, the kind of abuses I've seen and have been able to do nothing about, um, I can't say anything more than that, um, but I've been very, you know, they, they've, been, they've been actually so, so hard for me that I um, was unable to continue doing that work, right, to just back out. Um, and then, I was never, I never felt that way in juvenile hall, even when, you know, um, even when I was, I was dealing with kids who, you know, who were violent. Um, it just, it just wasn't the same. So, so that, um, that's, I think the most, maybe the most interesting thing I could share. You're, you're everywhere all the time and um, you're spread out. And I, I never liked the work, right? I don't like not existing. I don't, I don't, mm. I don't actually like the job. I, you know, I have a, I, I have a lot of thoughts and I like to share them. And so being forced to say something that I actually, I, I despise saying, right. To say the opposite of what you believe. I mean, that's great practice, right? You um, want to be able to be adaptable in that way, or even to, to be forced to say something you despise so that you can um, sit in the perspective of that person. I think, you know, most people don't actually, they never do that, right? They'd rather just hear their opinion come out of the other person's mouth. So, you, you know, that's not great. Um, yeah. but, um, uh, but, but that's, yeah, that's, that's what's, you know, I'm grateful for that aspect, even if I didn't like the actual mechanics of the work. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, I, I can, I can relate in a very, very small way. I remember in high school, in it's like history or debate class or something. And, you know, you had to, you were assigned a, a, a stance on a particular issue, regardless of what you really felt about it. Right. Cause you know, you're trying to work on objective debating skills rather than your particular bias or preference or whatever. And it was something to do with like nuclear proliferation in Pakistan and India. I can't remember exactly what, but I remember I was like, no, I'm not. Cause like the teacher assigned me, cause as you're saying, like you have to say things that you don't, actually believe to be true and you have to represent them in a certain way and i remember the teacher was like well this is your this is your side of the argument i was like no no i don't i'm not fucking i'm not doing that like i just i can't do that i don't know how to think if i'm not uh representing what i think is true right like where am i drawing things from like i no, <laughs> i don't i can't remember if i actually capitulated ultimately or if he just let me go i it's a bit blurry but I feel that. And I mean, I can imagine it's that times a hundred in your line of work. I want to, I want to come back, come back to what you said about, because a super interesting dynamic of simultaneously being the person in the room who exists the least, let's say, in as far as everyone is concerned, but the one in the room 
who is, who is observing the most and how much their non their relative non-existence amplifies their ability to observe because people aren't catering to their the different things that they're no, that you typically notice about someone who you think is noticing you right typically like we're, we're always surveying the room to say oh i said something and this person their shoulders did this they were reacted all, all and conscious and subconscious data that we're taking in to make you know to orient ourselves continuously in, a, in an environment whereas your people aren't orienting themselves to you they're not as concerned about what they're saying as far in relation to you but you're like dialed in more so than anybody on that dynamic that's taking place actually let's just i was going to you know go back to your uh, you, you know how you came to be involved in this work but let's just hang out here for a second because i think it's super interesting how i mean what what has that experience been like and what has it taught you about human interpersonal interaction and psychology and culture even more broadly if if anything like yeah, spending that much time in that interpersonal space that is so unique must must be very must have been very insightful in very in a variety of ways um yeah it's it's i don't actually know where to begin um um wow uh i'm, I'm gonna try to dial in the question um i, I guess there are, there are a couple maybe a couple things that I've, I've walked out with, which is that, um, people, um, we've become so, uh, over-specialized and uh, yeah, we've become so over-specialized that we no longer believe that somebody in a role that's not um, designated has anything useful to say. That's number one. So um, nobody ever asks the janitor for his opinion, but it may very well be that he has something extraordinarily insightful to say, even if he's not quite sure how to say it. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think what I've seen actually the most is, is um, relatively mediocre leadership. I think that's I think that's maybe the fairest thing to say because leaders are able to see diamonds anywhere. They're able to figure something out anywhere. And I'm not talking about me. I mean, there were many times where I walked into a room and I had no idea what the hell was going on. So you shouldn't ask me anything, right? But um, but there were times where I thought, you know, just looking at this, I was like, the quiet person there seems to have a lot to say, but they're not saying it. Um, and they're not saying it maybe because the dynamic here isn't quite right or the atmosphere isn't quite right or. Maybe they just, they've got something else on their mind and somebody else needs to, to provoke them into speaking um, or coax it out of them. Um, so we, we actually have a very ineffective, you know, in general, just a, the, the bar for conversation is very low. The bar for thought is very low. The bar for persuasion is very low. The bar for um, recognition of what others are feeling is very low. And that's in a time when everybody is talking about, I mean, just these words like empathy, you know, feel feel what you're really feeling and so on. And um, I've never liked any of that. Uh, I don't, um, I've never liked these exercises where you come in, you meditate for five minutes. I mean, I think those are things that, you know, I, I don't, I think to each their own physiology, right? Some people don't want to rest, they want to go. And um, some people need the rest. And so if you need to just take five minutes, get out, come back in, 
you don't have to be told, you know, somebody needs to walk out five minutes in the middle of a meeting because it seems useless to them. And they feel in five minutes, they'll check back in, get out, check back in in five. Um, so I think, I think there's, there's, there's that, there's just this, um, this huge, this huge gap between, um, I want to say sort of what people are capable of, the systems that are in place to make people highly capable. And then just even the, the interpersonal relationships are just, they're just not great. Um, that's one. The second is um, um, that I think, I think, um, uh, I, mean, I mean, I guess, what do I, do I want to say this or do I not want to say this? Um, uh, you know, like, yeah, I'm constantly, like, as I'm saying things throughout this whole thing, I'm like checking, checking myself and, you know, which, what I should say and what I shouldn't. Um, uh, there is no culture today. There isn't any. I don't know what, I don't know what anybody means by it, but, but this is the truth that nobody really believes in anything. Nobody really believes in what they're doing. Um, I don't see anything authentic in the vast majority of the work I've ever done, period. You know, um, I think Bitcoin has been a wonderful uh, incidental, you know, in a sense, incidental reaction to that, right? I don't, I don't know how many of us really figured out that. Um, I, well, I was going to say figured out that reducing inflation or even capping, you know, capping our our currency at uh, <laughs> or, or you know a money at uh, at twenty one million would then lead us to to start thinking and with a lower time preference, you know, and so on that whole argument. But I actually wanted to say something like, we were already starting to lose our, our beliefs or we were, or this culture, this idea of culture that was already starting to fade back when we were on the gold standard. So, so it's not, you know, I'm starting to think that fiat is kind of um, correlative, not causative. It's, uh, it's the, the feedback loop actually started before we got onto the fiat standard. And mm -hmm. um, Bitcoin is just a chance for us to try to reorient ourselves in the middle of what seems to be a very serious societal collapse of sorts. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I'll stop there. I, I don't know. Sure, I, I, sure. Yeah, I, yeah. Got, um, I got lots. Uh, yeah. you know, perhaps it's the case, and maybe we should discuss this angle of it, maybe fiat is just another result of the death of God you know, sort of thing where when you move away mm -hmm. from the rails of absolute or ultimate or highest meaning, then all sorts of, uh, you know, bad things for lack of a better term or detritus is able to pile on top of that vacuum or pile into that vacuum and, and a, a corrupt, unfair relative system of money is just another example of that, another expression of that perhaps. And let's, you know, that's kind of interesting. So I do want to get your take on that. But first, before I forget, uh, I also, in preparation for this, listened to you sign Eminem's Rap God. That shit was fucking unbelievable. Like, I don't, and as, you know, many of the comments in the YouTube video suggested, like, I don't know if this guy's fucking actually rapping or actually signing Rap God or not, you know? So I'm just going to have to take it on faith. But if he is, holy fuck, it's impressive. So I, I, I didn't want to forget to say that. Um, but, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. But you know, I, you what, know, in fact, it, it was just a grocery list, you know, it's just a really <laughs> long grocery list. Yeah, man, just memorized it. And anyway, but no, you know, uh, continuing this discussion about, you know, uh, what your experiences have kind of uh, what you've learned from your experiences in doing this type of work, I can I can appreciate that because you mentioned the kind of the current modern day rhetoric around empathy, you, you find kind of superficial. And I can appreciate why that might be the case because you're there really having to empathize with me. And, and let's just 
get the context there now because we've, we've probably gone on too long, but you are a child of uh, deaf, deaf parents, correct? Yes. Yeah. And so you grew up in an environment where both your parents were deaf. And of course, that's going to generate an entirely different or dramatically different childhood than most people. And it's going to put you in a number of situations that you're probably going to have to mature more quickly. You're probably going to have to you know, understand or be exposed to certain psychologies earlier than other people might and responsibilities and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, we can certainly dig into the different, uh, different components of that. But one of the ones that you mentioned in, um, I think it was like a, a 35 page write up that you did on your blog on your, uh, on your childhood growing up to, to deaf parents was this story where you were negotiating a, a secondhand a used car purchase for your mom, I believe. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the sleazy salesman was kind of flirting with her and, he was, and she, she was trying to get a better deal. Your mom sounds like an awesome person. And despite her disability, she was like, you know, just never going to let it hold her back sort of thing. And she was trying to, you know, basically negotiate through you a better deal for the car and the warranty and that kind of stuff. And in that process, he was being a, a creepy car salesman and he was trying to, you know, get her to, he was trying to get, you know, in her pants basically for a better discount on the car. And you were the one that one was in between that. And as a result, aware of that, and you're the one that had to figure out how to communicate, how to mediate that, what to communicate, how to communicate and how to stay calm yourself. Cause some creep, creep ball is, is, is hitting on your mom. And the reason why that makes me think of your comment about empathy is because like you have to really be able to embody the, the people that you're communicating for or in between in order to do your job as effectively as possible in order to maximize the fidelity of the communication that's passing through you. And so I can appreciate why all this, you know, this lip service and this false rhetoric around empathy today is, you know, rubs you the wrong way because you've, you've probably had to develop a, a capacity for empathy that far exceeds what most people have in the world today. Um, yeah, uh, a lot was said there, so I, I wanna get to all of it. Um, what, what I'll say for the empathy pieces is, is this, that um, part of what makes it so fake or inauthentic is that um, people often rarely say what it is that they really are or what they believe or what they are doing and why they're doing it. So um, I'm gonna quote Nietzsche a lot probably over the course of this chat. I love Sweet. Nietzsche very much. Yeah, he's my favorite. Um, so he says something like, uh, and the death of God, as you mentioned, I mean, that's the that's sort of the, the crux, I think. I mean, it's interesting that, that we'll like, to go there. Um, so um, Nietzsche says something about, and uh, uh, in, in thus spoke Zarathustra, there's basically a line about a robber and he says something, you know, it's, it's this chapter called The Pale Criminal. It's in book one of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I think it's six. So uh, if I may, chapter one, you know, uh, book one, uh, chapter six, verse whatever, 13. Don't, I, you know, I, uh, I'm sorry to everyone Show who has off. to hear that. Yeah, right. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, uh, it's, it's sort of this, uh, I guess I'm, I'm trying to make this half joke about how like Nietzsche is the new Bible, but, uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, rather than show off. But yeah, I realize that that's how it sounds now. Um, no, uh, he, he says something about how there's a, a criminal who's being convicted of a, of a, of a, uh, um, a murder and a robbery, I believe. But 
he says something like the robber actually justified the murder by means of the robbery. Like what he really wanted was to kill somebody. He was out for blood. But his mind said, that doesn't, you know, you can't just do that. You need a justification for it, a rationalization. So he went and stole something instead. And I think that's a very profound recognition. That goes in the mind, that goes through the minds of people all the time, right? Just in some very, you know, very um, seductive, subtle, obscure way that we tend to say something like, well, I, you know, this is what I want, but there's a part of you that's going, no, 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 what you really want is this other thing, but you're using this, this other, this, this piece to justify. So when you approach somebody directly about their, what they're feeling, they're very rarely honest about what it is, why it is, how it is, the root of it. And it's often much simpler than they make it out to be, right? We'll come up with all kinds of rationalizations and, and so on. And I think the the first generation of psychologists in the modern world knew this, and that was part of sort of getting to the root of things, like who you really are and what you really are. Um, so it is a, yeah, it is a pain in the ass because if you're observing very carefully, you might just say something like, no, I think this person has a propensity to not be grateful. In other words, like this person is always complaining. And then you're like, well, practice gratitude. But gratitude isn't, may, might not actually be in that person's vocabulary. They might not have that access to that feeling altogether. Um, what they understand as gratitude might actually just be um, their sense of justice, which is to say vengeance. Like I'm grateful that he got his just desserts rather than an actual feeling of gratitude. Um, and that's, that's not nearly the same thing. So um, in fact, it's, I think it's the opposite thing. It might even be so far as to be the opposite thing. So, um, so like tends to coalesce with like, right? And unlike tends to separate itself from unlike. And so you can, you can very much see who people are based on their friends. And then if their friends are that kind of people, you know, they complain, they complain, they complain then, um, and they're incapable of gratitude, then you can be pretty sure that um, that's sort of, a, I mean, this is, I think a very controversial statement, but it's almost a biological phenomenon. You're almost predisposed to being that way. Why, I don't know. And maybe your environment sort of um, encourages certain of those traits where, where in another world you might have had to be, you might have been forced to obfuscate. You might have been forced to rationalize this or that temptation, that feeling. But I think, I think in some sense, it's actually, it's actually relatively hardwired um, what your propensity to something is. And, um, and the hope is that your environment doesn't actually um, uh, turn you back into yourself and create ill will towards your tendencies, right? So if you're a really sweet person, but the world keeps telling you to um, despise that instinct, then you're going to end up destroying yourself, right? You're going to end up having that kind of ill will. So mm -hmm. um, you hope that the environment, the culture is one that perpetuates sort of the, the very best of us, you know, the very best tendencies and those who might be predisposed or even inclined towards sort of go that way. Um, anyway, that's a whole other subject, but um, just well, it's to, a good one. We'll come back to it because you, you've made a comment saying there is no culture, right? There's no authenticity. And if we're saying that it's important that the culture reinforces a proper approach to oneself and a proper understanding of oneself and therefore others, then it's very much important that, or it's very relevant and significant that your opinion is that culture is basically, well, degrading or non-existent or inauthentic, but keep going yes. with your train of thought and we'll come back to that. That's it. Well, and, and that's right. That's one threat. So in order to make sense of that, we actually have to go back to something you said earlier, which is the death of God. And then uh, Nietzsche has a few thoughts on this, right? None of this is mine. Uh, uh, he, he says something to the effect of God was a problem in the first place. 
because um, it forced people with a variety of approaches to life, right? A variety of physiologies, um, I, I wanted to say physiognomies, but physiologies, um, cultural propensities, you know, tendencies to all sort of be put under a single funnel, to all go under God. So once upon a time, there were, you know, whatever, the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, they all had this distinct way of living. And, um, and then eventually Christianity just kind of took over like a giant bubble and um, turned everyone into um, sort of a mold, like an identical kind of mold, more or less. Like they were all sort of stamped into place. And this is, by the way, um, for me, no condemnation of Christianity whatsoever, or modern Christians whatsoever. Um, actually very much like Christians, but that being said, um, this is sort of his, his historical explanation. So this is, this is just a sense of what happened. So one, one culture became so successful that it, it took them all over and he thinks successful for the wrong reasons. So we can go into that. We don't have to, but that's basically the idea. And then, um, what happened was people for a while believed in God very sincerely, but then when we started to not believe in God anymore, right? The death of God, he's starting to in a sense, sound the alarm and say something like, how is it possible that, or what, what comes after that? Um, and what comes after that is our, our actual tendency to believe, like our very ability to believe in anything such that we might not see it's, it happen within our lifetimes, right? We used to be able to build a project and die knowing it wouldn't be finished in our lifetimes. We would never get to see it, but we would die with some kind of relief knowing that in three generations, the Parthenon would be finished or whatever, the, the pyramids of Giza. Um, and now we can barely wait for a video to load, you know? So this tendency to believe at all has died along with the death of God. And that wouldn't have happened if we had had a variety of cultures to begin with. But there's a kind of, I mean, he's, he's saying, he also says a lot that, you know, a lot of good things came about this sort of silver lining uh, with Christianity and we can, we can come into that. But, um, but, but that's sort of the problem to solve, right? Is, is, what can be done to recreate people's sense of belief, particularly if there's no God, right? So what can people believe in? How can people have the same kind of happiness and joy that faith in God brings without God at all? And how can you do it without LARPing, right? How can you do it authentically, seriously? That's a very um, difficult question. And Nietzsche sort of always points, but he never quite tells you. And I think it's very important that he never tells you, right? He wants us to put in the work. In other words, if he just, if he were to give simply the answer in a way, um, it would also be more of the same, um, another system. And he, he's not interested in systems. He believes that a will to a system, in his words, is a lack of integrity. So, um, so that's, that's all that. Um, so I guess, I guess, you know, part of the problem is right with modern, with modern culture is that we, we have this deep seated inauthenticity because we're not really capable of believing in anything. When you can't believe in anything, you can't become anything either. You're just sort of whatever the moment calls for. You become this kind of actor, like a sign language interpreter, I suppose, where every minute you're something else, right? In the morning, you're one thing. In the afternoon, you're another thing. And you're not a stone, right? You can't be built on. You can't build on, you can't be built on. And so everyone is just some cheap actor, some kind of thing. And so the question is, are you actually a genuine person or are you LARPing or are you, you know, what are you exactly? So you have to know that first and then you can start to, to take steps in whatever direction towards what is authentic because it's, you know, it's impossible for someone to be authentic if there is nothing there. If there's no there there, 
I don't really care what I give, you know, what I saddle you with, like, you're just going to be whatever that is. Mm. So, um, so there's no point in having a kind of a, a discussion about authenticity if there's nothing authentic about you. Um, and that's, I think, a very harsh recognition, but there are people out there, right, who have, there is no, where there is no there there, legitimately. And it just is, like, there's nothing good or bad about that. It simply is a fact. Um, very harsh to say that out loud. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't like saying it. So I'll, I guess I'll stop there. Well, I, I think many of us can probably appreciate that sentiment. <clears throat> and, you know, speaking, well, first of all, I mean, this is kind of the question. Again, this leads back to, you know, the, the death of God quote. It's like, can there be a there there without God there effectively? Now, I'm not, I'm not necessarily imposing a particular God, but can there be, can you be properly integrated and constituted and embedded within all these different nestled patterns in the world from, you know, the teeny tiniest to the largest magnitude without a, a centering value, an absolute force or value there? Like, is that, is a tether to that is what's needed to be quote unquote there and to be able to have the capacity to be authentic and then to have the capacity to contribute to a family, a community, a culture that is likewise imbued with that quality. And that's an interesting question. I, I lean towards instinctively the answer being yes, you need some paramount orienting truth or value uh, because otherwise everything becomes relative. And to your point, like I think to your point, you, you, you mentioned how like it, it, we, we only before people would engage in great works that they, they weren't going to be around to see the completion of. And now we can't wait for a video to download. I feel like if you're not deriving a sense of peace and joy and fulfillment, like you just uh, alluded to, through that ultimate there, that ultimate source of meaning, then I, I feel like it's quite natural that you'll, you'll look outward at complexity and phenomena and uh, sensory experience to try to fill that void. And it would seem to be quite rational to me, at least, that absent being able to find a commensurate sort of meaning in that realm, you'd increasingly, you know, kind of rev the engines to try to mine it for more and more and more and more like digging for meaning. And so perhaps this is why it, it to the extent and if it's true that we're moving away from a notion of God that is a source of meaning and we've moved far more, you know, on the side of the material and we just continue, like it, it, it would seem to make sense that we would continue to ramp up the speed at which we're engaging that to try to find meaning because we're so incapable of finding it there, you know, without the, the balance or the tether to the former. And in that sort of environment, it would, you know, of course, you're going to create a culture that is just faster and faster pace and less and less fulfillment, let's say. There's, if, if you don't have anything immediate to that, there was a few other things that I was going to comment on. One, you know, I, I feel like, first of all, I, I feel like your particular job, and no disrespect here, but I, I could see how it could become somewhat maddening being in that, being in that box all by yourself and taking in all that data and having to find the middle ground. Like it kind of makes me think of a, this isn't the maddening part, but it kind of makes me think of like a nature of observer or documentary filmmaker in a way like you don't because you might be interpreting for someone you might like first of all I can see what this person who this person really is I can see what they really mean 
I can, I know better how to communicate what they're trying to communicate, but that wouldn't be representing them the way that I'm supposed to be representing them. So I have to say it the way that they're intending to say it, not the way that I think, or I'm almost sure would generate a better outcome for now. Sometimes, you know, maybe you have different, uh, depending on the context, you can have a bit more wiggle room, but like, it must be so weird to have to restrain. And there, there's a morality even here. It's like, should I not, I don't know, save the rabbit from the wolf, for example, or should I not save this dialogue from degrading into an argument when I could easily mediate it towards a better outcome? You know, should, why shouldn't I do that? And just, I'm presuming it's the case that you don't do that most of the time because you don't want to interfere with whatever dynamic is happening in between, in between two commuting parties, uh, communicating parties and what they're intending to communicate and impose your own supposed more beneficial outcome upon the, the situation or the context. And I, I, all that taken together, not, I mean, like we were saying before, I think that would rapidly develop, you'd rapidly develop a, a, a very high degree of empathy and understanding and psychological understanding and all that kind of stuff. But I could see it being like a, a prison at the same time, because you're so you, it's almost like you have this enormous capacity, you develop this enormous capacity as a result of this work. And you're, you're forced to stay inside this little box, you know, I guess, you know, the, the genie in a bottle metaphor is somewhat applicable here. Yeah, I really, I really like the metaphor. Um, I mean, I, you, you've said it. Um, I mean, more or less, we say, we say what needs to be said, you know, what is, what is said. Um, and um, I said needs to be said. So I guess, yeah, I guess some, there are times when we, when we say not necessarily what they literally say, but what they mean to say. And that's a very, um, it's actually a very dangerous distinction, right? Because what do they mean to say? And are you sure they mean what they mean to say, right? You start to get into epistemology there. How do you know mm. that you know what they know, right? Or, and so on. Um, um, and I, I guess, you know, I guess we're, There's a phenomenon that I've I've found myself able to do after doing this, you know, for so long. Um, you know, even now, sometimes my mom will ask me to, you know, interpret for her, for example. Um, and uh, I've noticed that I'm able to finish her sentences before she does. Sure. There's a very there's a very interesting. I mean, even with people I I've only just met, like the conversation happens so often that I've turned into like Google you know, like you're able to actually finish, predict the sentence in the email. And so I, I guess, you know, this is a very um, terrible response to an epistemological concern, but it's something like, if you make epistemology a question of probability, you're probably gonna be right. And you, and you have a decent, I hate to do this, but you know, a decent <laughs> predictive algorithm, God. Um, you know, remind me to get away from the moderns for a bit. But you know, if you have a decent <laughs> predictive algorithm, you can you can actually guess at what is being said or what what should happen in this conversation most of the time. And I think I think that, um, for lack of a better word, uh, that phrase that that algorithm is called instinct, and that instinct is not just in the brain but throughout the body. And um, I, think, I think we say our gut for a reason, right? Um, there are neurons in the gut and it seems to be very 
seems to be very well placed uh, that metaphor. Um, so I think I think so much of what what I what I do and what I think other good sign language interpreters will do um, is largely based on that. They will adjust they will adjust the message only according to um, um, more or less what what one of what what the parties uh, mean to say and sometimes don't don't totally say. Um, and that's in order to um, keep the conversation at a certain at a certain uh, liveliness. Like I don't have a better word. Basically, I I have this theory, right? That that there's there's you, there's the person you're talking to, and there's the conversation between you. And that conversation is itself a third entity. And so you have to, you know, if you're the interpreter, what you are quite literally, you're not just the two people, but you're the third person, you're the third thing in the room, you're the conversation. So there are actually four entities in the room at any given time. So when two people are speaking, there are three nodes. When there are three people in the room, there are going to be, I mean, if they're all having one conversation, there are four, right? So something like that. So basically, um, the the conversation becomes something that you, you want to keep at a certain um, uh, level of vitality. There's, it has pauses like breaths, right? It has moments where where there's something spoken, um, like a like an exhale, and then it you want the you want the pacing of that to be um, in a sort of like a I don't know like a sine curve, right? You want it to be very very beautiful, like very flowing. Um, and so you, as the interpreter, are almost occupied with um, the life of the conversation. I think that's, that's sort of where the art comes in. And then incidentally, very strangely, what happens is when you focus so much on the conversation and less on the two people, the two people actually walk out better. They do better. Things are, things just work out better between them. I know that sounds very strange, but you know, um, but, but yeah, it's, it's never, it's never saying what they're not saying. It's never saying what they don't mean to say, and it's never um, inserting yourself into it, but there is this kind of um, gray uh, liminal space where where what they what they mean to say and what you can express um, sort of come together and there's something that's not you and that's sort of them but not yet them nascent needs to be said but isn't being said and and that you can you can occupy as an interpreter and I think the term that we use for that um, which is a I mean to me a relatively silly term um, it's called a dynamic you know cultural like dynamic equivalence it basically means like um, they, the, the, the common feeling in the space is that the reason why, say, deaf people or hearing people can't express, can't be understood by the other as easily is because of a, it's a cultural question. So um, you as the interpreter sort of take that liminal space and what that is, that, that liminal space is actually called culture and you just fill it in with your cultural knowledge and you make that happen. I think it's much more interesting than that. Um, and I think it's well, much more fundamental than, than this sort of throwaway word that's become culture, which can now mean apparently anything. And it's very, mm. it's very stupid, you know? So, um, but I, you know, dynamic equivalence is just this very, you know, it's very, this, this very Latin heavy term, you know, like all these Latin words and they're just all thrown together. I don't, you know, I don't know what they mean. So, yeah. Well, it may, and I don't know if you have more to say on this, but we alluded, we were, I gave some of my comments on, the current state of the culture and why it is there might be a, a lack of authenticity there. And again, like if you know, if you just you just kind of insinuated that an understanding of that that cultural space in the middle is often important to do your job properly. And and then a few minutes ago you made 
the fairly you know, uh, blunt statement that there is no culture or there is very little authenticity. I mean, why do you think that is the case? Uh, you know, we've been, we've touched on it a little bit, but do you have any more to say on, on why you think authenticity is so hard to find today and how culture is not supportive of it? Um, Yeah, um, I, I'm sort of trying to get at get at what it, what that is. Like, what it, I mean, in order to answer that question, in some sense, you also have to ask sort of what is a civilization? Is it just a bunch of people who get together and decide to you know whatever live in a city? That doesn't seem right. You know, like it doesn't seem right to me that culture is hot dogs and apple pie and baseball. You know, as much as I love those things, it just doesn't seem right. Um, and it also what doesn't does seem, seem right. Yeah, what yeah, yeah. Seem, what would seem right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Shakespeare seems right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, the, this is the question. How do you know greatness when you see it? You know, like, how do you know culture when you see it? Um, I think culture is ultimately... Um, an amalgamation, you know, a combination of things um, that induce us to reach into ourselves and above ourselves such that without it, we would never be anything but blob. We would never be anything but, um, we would never be anything, period. And um, I think, I think that's it. I, I think, um, I, I don't, and I, you know, it's, it, I, so then I guess it's something like, okay, so into yourself and above yourself in what ways, right? <laughs> um, that's a, you know, that's an even harder question. And then you say something like, well, there is no one way. I mean, this sort of is me trying to also answer the, the question of, you know, do you need God or do you not, right? I don't believe that there's only one way for a human being to turn out. I don't believe that, you know, while all trees I would like to believe more or less go upwards. I don't believe that there's only um, one solution for one tree, right? Different trees, different climates, different fruits, different wildlife, different ecosystem. I think it's it's sort of rough analogy. I think it's relatively similar for human beings. Um, and we sort of are, are an outgrowth of that. And so, so- They all need the sun though. Do they? I mean, we could be subterranean. It would be no life if we were, you know, it would be nothing good. So I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I like that. I mean, I like that, you know, one star as it were, like one main star. Um, well, and, um, and, you know, to, yeah. to carry over the analogy of the metaphor in the human domain, the sun has so often been the representation of God, the highest value, what have you, throughout pretty much every culture that there's ever been. And, and so, you know, it's a very difficult question to ask what is culture and what is civilization, but I would think that it's, it's the net manifestation of every person acting out their values. And so then if we're going to compare them in a certain way, it's like, well, if we're going to compare one culture versus another, perhaps we are able to tease out what the values are that are driving the culture as a result of the actions that are being fostered or facilitated or reinforced there. Mm -hmm. And then I think it, then the question becomes, well, if that is the case, 
what values are the best to be oriented by such that they manifest in the world and that their manifestation brings about the best quote unquote, whatever that might mean, possible culture or interper, you know, individual and interpersonal experience of oneself and, and one another. And those are you, big, important uh, questions. Yeah. I mean, do you believe the Japanese and the French are uh, better or worse than each other, than the other? Like, would you put them in a rank, a rank, you know, a hierarchy of sorts? Because I couldn't. And I, I, I mean, I guess that's what I mean, right? Like the Japanese are totally incommensurable in a way with, with the French, right? Um, just everything about the other, the sort of the, the French are very uh, like, right joie de vivre and the japanese are very um focused on your craft for 50 years like they take everything with a sort of seriousness everything requires a certain kind of subtlety um their cuisines are so representative of how different they are but i would never say that one was better or worse than the other and i i think even their cultural achievements speak to that too like uh it's very it's very hard to say that one would be better or worse than the other so i, I think that's what i mean right that that um their values are fundamentally different, but I don't think you could put a Frenchman in Japan and I don't think you could put a Japanese man in France. I think it would be very hard for them, but they would thrive in their own, in their own worlds. Um, but also it's this sort of give and take, right? Like there, there was, they all talk about like this mythical starting figure, right? For the Gauls, like there was this, you know, mythical, you know, Vercingetorix was the revolutionary. Um, I believe, you know, Japan is the emperor. So they, they always have these, um, like Romulus and Remus for Rome um, and, and so on. Um, everybody has their kind of um, mythical starting figure who brought about these values, invented them for us. So I think, I think that's, that's in a sense like what it is, right? Like there are a lot of us who would just feel aimless um, because we don't have that, that rare genius of creation, like whatever that is, that ability to to make something from nothing, as it were. Like there was this starting man who, who is Japan. And then there was the starting man who is Greece, ancient Greece. And they're, you know, and they're in a sense eternal and in a sense very transient. We no longer have an ancient Greek uh, individual, but we have the shadow of what they were and we're very impressed by what they, what they are, right? The Iliad and so on. It's, it's a very impressive work. Um, so I guess, I, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Not to, yeah, you know, no, yeah, yeah. No, and, and I think we're both, not even sure what we're getting at, but uh, you know, I, <laughs> right. I, I think that is the point that those figures, and I think Vercingetorix was, was actually, he stood down Caesar in, in Gaul, I believe, was um, his yes. historical fame. Um, but all these figures, all the way up to perhaps the archetypal one in, in the central culture hero, the relig religious hero, which you know the West is most familiar with Jesus Christ, the whole reason why they're elevated is because they're representative of the embodiment of certain values and they become something to strive towards to create a almost a moral umbrella under which you know everyone can determine their own goodness in relation to and strive towards like this is what it's almost like it's necessary because absent that you have this complete relativism which you know perhaps many many are of the opinion that we have something like that today and if you do have that, then it leads to disorder because there is no, you know, North Star, as it were. There is no, no sun. There is no, nothing that's helping maintain the order out of the chaos. And, you know, I think there's, there's a reasonable case to be made that that's happening today. And again, back to Nietzsche. I mean, I think that was part of, and you're way more into Nietzsche than me, but I think that was, that was maybe part of his 
uh, argument or logic in, in the statement he made about the death of God in that it would induce or what would follow would be this sort of uh, relativistic situation, which would have a lot of negative outcomes. Just to, yeah, just to, to shed some light on that, I think, I think relativism only comes about when you give up, when you say there's nothing guiding me whatsoever. But the truth is that there is something guiding us, and that is our biology. In other words, where there is the North Star is is our is 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 in a sense our body and nothing besides, um, but also you know nature. Like in other words, we we can sit in the woods for a week away from the modern city, and um, what we would be around is health, nothing but health, as far as the eye can see. Right, so you can just sit there and watch an oak tree be an oak tree, and you can watch water go through a river, and you can you know the very the sort of the Zen. Um, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse did a, you know, he does a wonderful job sort of talking about the nature of being Zen. Um, and, and so whether a tree is guided by God or not, right, that sort of becomes an intellectual argument of human beings, but you could just as easily say that it's guided by, in a sense, by both by what's around it and by itself. And so you get this kind of, this is where I think Nietzsche settled. He, he, he would probably say, not that everything is relative with the death of God, but that everything is perspectivist. That is to say, you want to sit in as many seats as possible to get a sense of a framing of the world. You want to be in the tree, the frog, right? And so on, the grass. But to get a sense of what life in each of those angles is like. But you also want to know that some of those lives are better than others. So the life of an eagle is more beautiful than the life of a sheep. Why? Because, I mean, this... Right, it, it comes down to what do you feel when you're at that in that height. So you're looking down upon everything. You're this you're this great creature that can soar, that can dive, that can move in in three dimensions quite easily. Whereas a sheep can really you know, only let's realist let's be realistic, move in two, and is always um, subject to subject to the uh, the dangers of the eagle from on high. And so um, so I think that's sort of the that's the response to your question, right? It's there is a kind of, you know, if you take God out of the picture, there is a kind of rank and hierarchy. Some things are better than others, but because there's no God to affirmatively establish that this is the good thing and this is not, it, in a way it does become a war of might is right, inevitably. In other words, and, and the strong may not always win. I mean, Nietzsche's paradox is that the strong tend to lose to the weak because there are so many more weak people or weak things than strong things. And so the, you have to protect the strong if you want the strong to rule. There's kind of this paradox about that. Um, and that the strong ruling is an exception of history. So he says that, right? That's his, that's his position. But that, um, but that sort of health, whatever health is, and I, the, you know, is a very grounded phenomenon. Like, what does that actually mean? It means, you know, good diet, good weather, all the things that Bitcoiners are very much into. And he would say that those are grounding, fundamentally grounding forces. Um, and that you don't have to go to this highest, this highest, most abstract theological phenomenon, right? God, um, to come back to those things, you can you can remove him from the picture um, if you if you choose. So it was Nietzsche's opinion that, well, a, a, an individual could be, and I know there's a lot of 
indefinable aspects of this question, but an individual could be optimally oriented or constituted absent the notion of a highest or absolute value like God. He was, he was very adamant about that. Yeah. He thought so. And he what, thought so. can you expand upon what he thought that constitution would look like? Um, and if you can't, that's fine, but I'm just curious if you can. Yeah. I mean, in a way I can, um, yes, I, I'm, I'm going to be more abstract in a, in a way on purpose. Um, one, one of the things he talks about is something I mentioned earlier, which is the, the ability to, he, he talks about this phenomenon called eternal recurrence which I like very much. And I think is a very rewarding thought exercise. So something like, would you, have you ever had a moment in your life where you would say, I'm okay with living everything that's led up to this point an infinite number of times. And if your answer is no, well, you know, that's no. And if your answer is yes, then you have this sense that you're able to, um, um, uh, I mean, I mean, it, I, I guess he considers it the heaviest question, right? This idea that no matter what you do, you're going to have to live whatever life you're living an infinite number of times. Like, can you build enough joy to to live to live exactly as you've lived without any regret or shame? And so, I, I guess he, he, it seems to me that he thinks the the most incredible human being would be someone who's capable of doing that. Um, someone who can say at every moment of his life that, yes, I would live this and every moment that's led up to it an infinite number of times, like true, true amor fati, right? True love of fate or true willingness to, to go with fate and, um, like a true eternal recurrence. I, I, and that's, yeah, I think that's, that's where he ends. I think that's where he ends up. Yeah. And why does he think, or how does he presume that such a a judgment can even be made without the notion of a, a highest value, let's say, you know, like, is he trying to get rid of the notion of God because he believes it has too many deleterious consequences, for example, or does he just think it's the natural progression of human consciousness to wind up there or, or what? I think he just saw the situation. I think he said, I think he said like, regardless of my role, this is where we're going. You know, there's just nothing I can do about that. So he doesn't, he believes that people don't truly believe anymore. That's it. And so he, he had to, he had a kind of urgency um, and the, he had to find another solution. Um, and I think, I think there's something to that in the sense that people today, right. A very common thing people say is I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I think there's a God out there somewhere in the ether and Christians, you know, 500 years ago would be revolted at that. They would say, well, what do you mean? Because it's impo that's impossible. In other words, like either you believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or you don't. Like there is no God without Jesus Christ. Like God of what? Like what God? By what rule? Like, is that just an excuse for you to do whatever you want? Because we have, we have a Christian way of life. Like you either live that or you're not a Christian. You're not a good Christian. Done. End of story. Right. Mm -hmm. And the Jews would have said the same thing. And the Muslims would have said the same thing. And they all would have understood that there are consequences to your actions. Like you go to heaven, you go to hell, you go to shale, whatever it is. Like Allah will strike you down. So it's, you know, you can't just be like, well, I'm spiritual. Well, well, well what the hell does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's empty. Mm -hmm. It's devoid of anything. 
So, um, so I think that's sort of what Nietzsche was pointing to. It's just this sort of grasping, at, um, desperately grasping at, at the edge of a, like at the, at the edge of a precipice, you know, it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing behind wanting just being spiritual, but a feeling, the feeling yeah. of God, which is devoid of any actual meaningful way of life. So if somebody is serious about God, then they're right. They're Baptist, they're, they're Catholic, they're Protestant. There's, there's something like some way of life, some grounding, they read the Bible, they go to church every Sunday, they try to be a good Christian. Of course, by trying to be a good Christian, you'll say you're a bad Christian, but at least you're, you know, Christian, which is great. Um, that was a half joke. And so, um, you know, like you, you have to have that structure um, to, to talk about God in any meaningful way. Otherwise, we're just, we're not really talking about anything. So I think Nietzsche foresaw that and was very concerned about it. Um, that's it. Which is interesting to go back to our prior uh, discussion about civilization, because it would seem at least that a hallmark of every civilization, at least up till this point, has been an explicit moral dimension, an explicit morality, an explicit, an explicit system of morality. And, you know, what do you know, you, you go into all these, well, any place, really, it doesn't matter if it's ancient Egypt, ancient Peru, medieval Europe, wherever, the, the central point of the town maybe not the geographic center but like the, the the conscious center perhaps is the place of worship whatever that might be a church an altar a pyramid or this or that or the other thing and so like it's almost like if we're talking about a definition of civilization you need an explicit moral ethic whether or not you know so and that's a whole kettle of fish to, to discuss all the different components of that but just to say that it seems like I mean, is Nietzsche suggesting that because when you when you bring up these people that say, like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, you know, maybe one of and maybe the biggest difference between someone who, I shouldn't say that this is too broad, because I think there's a lot of religious people that are religious in they say they're religious, but their actions, I don't think, reflect what I would define as being religious, but just to say that at least in the religious set, if they truly are, there's a far more explicit fleshed out uh, morality versus, and this is probably part of their critique of the quote unquote spiritual. It's like, well, it's great to feel that there's something greater than yourself and that you can connect to it and then the energy and the force and the ether and all that stuff. But what does it say explicitly and how do you cohere or how do you attempt to strive toward that? Uh, and it seems, if I'm hearing you correctly, it seems like Nietzsche or Nietzsche, uh, is it, did he not recognize that or did he have some kind of answer to that question or that circumstance? He did. Um, his, but his response was also something like no more systems. So no more moral systems, no more moral codes. He does something very shocking, right? In that sense. Like the answer is not another moral code because we'll end up in the same place or, or we might even be incapable of adapting to it today. Um, so, you know, he, he sees, uh, is that, what drink is that by the way? It looks great. It's water. It's just, oh, it's water. just, yeah, it's colored. In a, yeah, I was going to say the color. Yeah. Well, water is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, uh, I think that's his, I think that's his response. I think um, that's not a great response. So is it like no more systems, no more frameworks? I mean, look, I can appreciate the 
the criticisms of all these moral systems of the past, but also we don't know that we were capable of not having them. I mean, they, they emerged everywhere where human beings congregated and they've been a part of our history forever. I mean, what, what if it's the case that absent those systems as limiting and as abhorrent as they can sometimes devolve into, we could even come together at all as cooperating human beings? You know, and so it seems somewhat presumptuous just assume that no system is better than imperfect system. Yeah, I mean, let's. Um, there is a there is a lot to say here. Like, there's a lot more that to go to go into. I think, but um, if you don't mind, I'd I'd love to I'd love to shift tack just because it's uh yeah whatever. It's a, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot to pull from here, and I think I've just uh, I think I've just hit my. Hit my max in terms of uh, <laughs> Nietzsche and more and sort of uh, like. All right. Well, before yeah, we shift off, to a system, uh, yeah, yeah. Nietzsche, I, I do have one more question regarding yeah, him, sure. and I don't know if you're capable of answering or not. But do you know anything about Nietzsche the man? Like, I do. What he was like as a person, as a historian might describe him, as a friend or a partner might describe him. Yeah. Um, very. What people would say about him is that he was very quiet. He was very um, kind, you know, very polite in company. Um, he uh, was initially a very healthy man, and then, um, you know, a young a young kid, and his teachers recognized that he was very bright. And then he was a um, can't remember, what, you know, I, I think he was. Uh, um, I don't want to say nurse, but you know, he assisted. He assisted sort of medical. Um, um, he, yeah, he was a medical assistant, as it were, um, during a particular war, and uh, he realized that that you know there's not much uh, glory in in war per se. That like you know in a, in a kind of physical war, it's not it's not necessarily a great thing. Um, and there's you know there's more to get into that, like whether he really despised war altogether, or um, you know as a as a you know as a murderous thing or not. Um, but uh, from there he was the youngest professor at the University of Basel um, for philosophy at 24 years old. And then he wrote the book, The Birth of Tragedy. Everybody hated it. Um, he said, I don't care about any of you anymore. I'm just going to go write my books. And then he was no longer, he, I don't think he was a citizen of Germany. He was almost citizenless at one point. So he lived in Switzerland for a while. Um, and he switched his time, I think, between Switzerland and um, I want to say Italy. And then he started to get very sick. He got these splitting headaches. He had problems with his vision. And um, in spite of those problems, he wrote fanatically. Um, he never let that stuff kind of get him down. Uh, he walked eight hours a day, um, you know, with weights, uh, without breaking a sweat some days, um, just up, uphill. Um, and he, I mean, he what, believed- Just for exercise it. or because of his illness? Yeah, actually, yes, uh, both. Um, so, so it's, I love that you said that. So one is he never trusted a thought he had while sitting down. He said that thoughts while sitting down are very nihilistic. They're very bad. Yeah. You must walk. Um, the second is that he, he overcame in a way, um, his illness by being so physical, he overcame his own sickness by, by putting himself in work. So to everybody who's like, I'm sick, I can't do it. Nietzsche actually said, yeah, well, the way you fix that is by working by working your ass off. So Caesar that. had the same thing, right? Caesar had seizures. And then in order to fix that problem, fix it, right? I'm sure they got worse over the years, but in order to, to sort of prevent himself from succumbing to that, even though he was like a pasty white, you know, pasty, like a, 
um, soft seeming dude. Um, he uh, worked, he worked in the trenches. He dug trenches with his soldiers. He slept on the hard floor. He walked faster than any, he, he led his army faster than anyone ever had up to that time through very hard winters and over mountains and so on. Um, so, you know, that was, that was his safeguard against it. Um, and then eventually he, you know, Nietzsche succumbed altogether to, uh, to his insanity. Uh, we think it might've been a tumor, you know, we're not sure what it was. It was definitely not syphilis as some people like to say, absolutely not. Um, so he had a tumor in about 1890. So he was, I think, 44 when he finished writing all of his works. And then he spent 10 years, um, in bed until 1900 where his uh mother took care of him Damn. um yeah yeah very hard very hard you, you know actually one, def- one more story if i may uh, the rumor yeah, yeah. the i don't I, I don't believe this is apocryphal i think we actually know this is true but um the rumor is that he went completely mad um when he was walking and he saw a horse um being whipped you know being beaten so his first response to it was to go up and, and hug it, you know, try to protect the horse. And that was when he supposedly lost his mind. And um, yeah, I mean, what a, what a way to it's lose a nice your mind. Story. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, it, I'm a, I've always felt that, well, first of all, that you live your philosophy. If you don't, how valid is it? Right. If, if you just understand it in theory, then but you don't live it, then some, there's some, something that's incongruent with that. Um, and I've also always felt that you can't separate, the mind and the body are intimately integrated. And if you're hoping to optimize one, you should be optimizing the other simultaneously. And so like, for example, if you want to optimize your intellectual output, you know, if you want to be a philosopher or a writer or something like that, you have to be working and optimizing and strengthening your body simultaneously for the mental clarity and calmness and focus and, and not even that, but the, the very real insights that physical exertion and physical challenge and strength uh, can deliver to you, you know? And I love how a lot of the Stoics and philosophers that we look back on today, like in the classical period, whether it's Aurelius or Caesar or even Plato, right? Plato was jacked. He was a wrestler. Like I think Plato is even a nickname was his wrestling nickname, or it means broad back or something like that. You know, so these guys weren't pussies, you know, they were, they threw down. And one of my, uh, you know, I guess part of one of my critiques of the landscape of, of uh, think boys and philosophers today is that, so many of them seem weak and frail and have over indexed the intellectual side of things and have not and have neglected the physical and um, among many other things I, I do think that inhibits your ability to live out your philosophy because we live in a physical world and you have to be able to move through that physical world and there are physical dangers and physical challenges and physical impediments on your path and you know all that kind of stuff and the uh, neglecting your capability in that domain inhibits your ability to live out your philosophy, at least to some degree. And um, I think that's actually going to change and probably is changing uh, as we move into, you know, a Bitcoin era to, if that is indeed happening, I I think there's a much greater appreciation being placed on the balance of those things. Um, But it does seem to me that in like up till this point or in in the modern era, intellectual was a, a strictly well, from the neck up sort of thing. And that doesn't seem to be the case in the ancient world, or at least many examples of. 
Yeah, 100%. I, um, I love uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu as an example. I don't think, I, I totally agree with you. I don't even think people should, um, there should be a, like middle school should just be replaced with three years of like wrestling, wrestling or something, yeah. you know, like really. Yeah. I mean, I have so much respect for wrestlers. Mm-hmm. Were you also a wrestler at one point? No, but I, I trained jujitsu and I, uh, and I have trained with wrestlers and they're, they're grinders and they're strong. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it builds so much character. I mean, that's the other thing about any martial art really, but jujitsu in particular is a really good one. I've only been training for uh, nine months or so. And I, I've done Muay Thai for a decade or so, but you know, you get humbled all the time. And if you really want to learn, like as a white belt in jujitsu, you're just getting choked and tapped all over the humbled. place. And yeah. you can very often feel like, I don't really want to go today. Like it's, I'm just going to get beat up again. You know, I'm just going to get embarrassed again. And if you can overcome, you know, that insecurity, if you, if you're, e- if you can have a healthy enough perspective on your ego to just keep going back, regardless of how uncomfortable it makes you feel, because you know, that there's a, there's a process unfolding here and that process, you know, you've got to trust in it and you've got to be methodical and intentional about it, but it will result in your improvement over time. And if you cannot attach yourself to the outcome of that, the, the, all the little outcomes of that process, i.e. getting your butt whooped every day, then you're probably going to make it. And on the other side, you're probably going to have a character that is dramatically improved from the one that you started with. Oh, 100,000%. I think that's the other thing I, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. One of the things I love about physicality and getting your ass kicked is that you can't rationalize it. You can only assess after the fact, like, what did I do wrong? What can I do better? What did this guy do that's worth noticing? But in the intellect, in the intellectual world, you can rationalize all you want. You know, this isn't right. You know, you can come up with every bullshit excuse. But if you build a habit of um, losing and being able to accept the loss, then when you take that into the world of the intellect, you're not going to be a little bitch about it when -hmm. somebody has a better idea than you do. Um, you're just going to be able to say, yeah, this is, you're right. You know, I didn't think this through clearly, you know, I didn't do the work. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And so actually a couple of close friends of mine were, um, uh, you know, wrestlers or jujitsu guys, and they, they have that very, you know, they think very clearly, they get straight down to the point. What is the conclusion from the premises? Right. And, um, yeah, there's just no, there's no, there's no bullshitting. It's, it's great. So real. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. 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 And it's the humility, like no matter how good you think you are, someone out there is definitely better. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, and I think what we, yeah. you know, one of the things that you mentioned, you know, people in middle school should just wrestle for a few years. And I'm actually, this is something I wanted to ask you about, because I know that you were previously involved in a startup that was into alternative learning from K to 12. And that's been a, uh, something mess. I've, I've been, int- well, yeah, a mess and something I've been interested in for a long time. And, and, you know, maybe in the latter part of my life will be involved in, in some capacity, but you know, I, there's so much emphasis today. Well, I mean, we're so fucked today, but you know, you can't even, you, you can't even be like being strong as a pejorative today, you know, or being, being yes. masculine as a pejorative where, whether you're a man or a woman, I think, and, and more so for the, this term would be more applicable to men, but there's certainly a, a translation of it for women is being formidable in every domain that you at least in some baseline domains. And then in every domain that you think that you're interested in, curious about, or you want to excel in, like, 
it's okay to be formidable physically as well as formidable intellectually, as well as formidable as a member of a community, as well as formidable as a partner in a relationship. Like, why would you not want to be formidable? Why would you not want to be especially capable at the things at applying yourself to the things that you de deem to be most meaningful? It seems there like totally, who... you know, rational to me. And, and as a part of yeah, that, you need yeah. to train to become formidable and, you know, that might mean wrestling, that might mean public speaking, that might mean all sorts of different things to shore up those, those weaknesses that you might have on your, in your attempts or on your journey to doing that. There are some people out there, I think, who simply do not have the will. Like, I, like here, here are my thoughts, right? So when you look at somebody's body, um, it's as you said, like, you know, can you live out your philosophy or can you not? Like, are you, you know, and I think the most clear manifestation of a philosophy is the body that somebody walks around in every day. Mm. You know, um, are you jacked? Are you lean? You know, like, do you need steroids? Like, are you just, a, you know, do you need to puff yourself up over much? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Are you overweight and why? Um, and I, I think um, there are some people who simply are incapable of becoming strong and formidable. And from their weak position, they want all the benefits that strong people have, but they know they can't earn it and they despise that. And I, I, I must emphasize this. I think, I think Nietzsche is totally, this is Nietzsche again, but I think Nietzsche is totally right about that, that there are people who are simply that way and they cannot be blamed for being the way they are. They simply are that way. That's not a, you know, I, I would say that from the perspective of a strong person, that's bad. And that's right, it is bad. And our instinct should be, if, if we're strong people, our instinct should be not simply not to be near them, right? Not to be near them and even in a way to wage war against that kind of weakness and um, largesse. And um, if we wanna say decadence, we can say decadence, collapse, whatever. Um, but it might, you know, either wars waged against it or you avoid it completely, you seal yourself away from it. But there simply will be people in the midst of that who can't be other than they are and what they are, no matter how much you try, is to be fundamentally opposed to, um, to the strong, just by, just by virtue of being who they are. And then there are mm -hmm. some people who could go either way. And those are the people that I really care about, right? Those are the people that I, I want to direct, right? The people who have lost their way, but in their hearts really are, say, strong. Those are the people you want to adapt, help you know, bring into the fold. And, and the answer to that is, of course, I mean, of course, the answer to that is being attacked all the time, but the answer is brotherhood, fraternity, right? Sisterhood. Um, mm -hmm. And so sorority and not the kind that's in colleges today, that's been totally damaged and, and devastated, but something with stakes in it, something that's real. So um, not these kind of, you know, I've never liked them. These, you know, these male therapy groups that run into the wilderness and I don't know, streak for a weekend or something. I don't know what the hell they do, but you know, just something more like, you know, something genuine, like a, yeah. a project or you guys all live together and you keep each other accountable or, you know, and like, there's a genuine brother. It's not just random people that all get together. Um, or, you know, jujitsu is something more real, I would say, or Muay Thai is something more real. Um, if you, you know, if we have to go down to task, you know, what is it? A brass tax. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think I'll, you know to to play devil's advocate for our own you know stance here. 
I think it's also important to allow for, you know, those exceptional individual, you know, I'm, I'm going to, um, this isn't the right way to put it probably, but like the, the savant prodigy nerd who just, you know, has no physical capability whatsoever. Like, do you want to put them through the same mold as everyone else? Or do you want to somehow allow their genius to flourish? And I would be on the side of the latter, which is why I'm such a critic of current educational systems and why I think in the future, we're going to have such better ones that will identify, uh, you know, talent and proclivity early and then direct that in a way that's most likely to amplify it and to, to refine it and that kind of stuff. And even in that case, you know, because formidable, I'm, I'm not just saying like everyone needs to be jacked, but an appreciation for, well, yeah, I mean, an appreciation for the struggle or, or the, the emphasis of, of strength in a variety of domains, right? At least, you know, somehow. And, and look, maybe it's just a matter of early exposure to get a taste and then you, you can be out. Like, I'm not trying to say everyone has to be the same and be put through the same mold here. I guess, you know, we're both just kind of commenting on it. It seems like in our modern world, it's been so under indexed, you know, the, the, the importance of that and how beneficial the proper approach to it can be. And, you know, we've, we're probably the average person that gets put through those educational systems is probably worse off because they've that aspect of themselves, which in most people is, is latent, I would say, has not been given, you know, proper sunlight and water, right? It hasn't been given the proper opportunity to be expressed and, and refined and beneficially integrated into who they are. And, you know, I think to your point on a Bitcoin standard, we will see more ritual and rites of passage integrated into the culture. And I think what that will be, and it'll take many different forms, and it's going to be very interesting to see what forms those are, but it will be the, the recognition of what are important values, attributes, skills, character traits, virtues. Those rites of passage and those rituals will be an attempt to imbue them into people, to remind people of, of their importance and to carry them forward within a, a family or a group or what have you, so that they're not so easily forgotten so that the, the instrumental role that they play in building the character of a person is not lost. And then for, and, and then those people become people that are detrimental to the culture rather than people that are beneficial to the culture that help build it up and refine it even more than the prior generation. And back to the, the you know, how we opened this conversation, I think you can make a fairly strong case that the many of the people that are alive today, many of the characters that are alive in the world are actually detrimental to the cultures that had been built up to this point, rather than beneficial to them in, in further refining them and making them even better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, if, you, I, if you don't have a response, I got other stuff. So you, you just tell no, me. I, um, well, let's see. I mean, yeah, you said a lot. I'm, I'm trying to recollect. Um, so part of it was, um, you know, most characters today are detrimental to, I mean, even in a sense, like forget culture, just sort of this, the ability for people to properly sustain themselves without collapsing inward, you know, without just going mad. Um, um, that's one. And then you talked about um, the cultural components in a, in a sort of, uh, in a Bitcoin world. And I, I, I mean, I say this a lot that I think, I think Bitcoin alone is not going to do it, right? Like there is going to just have to be 
a kind of cultural renaissance. Um, and part of that also has to reckon with um, two other phenomena. One is the just the reality of artificial intelligence and what it will do for human beings. So a lot of people already feel nihilistic because of what AI, they think AI is going to replace them and their value completely. So I think addressing that in some meaningful way or having, having enough of a vision for AI such that you know, we make clear what the role of being human is, um, as, as you say, like a kind of North Star for human beings. Um, and that in, in a way that breaks the need to be useful. Like let's suppose AI does everything useful, so then you're useless. Well, if all your self-esteem is based in being useful, right, a sort of democratic orientation, I don't know if that will work, right? We're gonna have to think of some other things. Um, so that's one. And then the other is um, um, the, you know, part of, part of what we've talked about, you know, part of what is vital is war, frankly. I mean, you and I talk about jujitsu and Muay Thai, and those are essentially just, you know, they're not just sports, they're combat, um, they're combat training. And um, people like shooting, I think there's a good reason for that. People, you know, hide and go, hide and seek is, is in a way like the very beginning of um, combat training, right? If you go all the way down, like it's an instinct, right? Go find the thing and catch it. Um, it's, it's like catching prey. It's, um, finding the enemy, um, being able to identify something in a, you know, in a great sea of whatever, or whatever it might be. Um, so, um, so the other element that Bitcoin is just not going to address, I mean, it'll address in part sort of this propensity for violence that we have, right? Violence to take other people's stuff, but it, it you know, there are, there are, of course, crimes of passion and um, people wanting to go to war because they're, they want it. Uh, they simply want it. There's no reason why I'm strong. I want to take this. That's it. I don't care if I get the Bitcoin or not. It doesn't matter to me. So um, that, that exists. I think um, we have to sort of direct that energy in some healthy way. So that's, that's one. But then the other side of that is, you know, in the short term, Bitcoin is, um, we we need to uh, we need to invent. I've been saying this for a while. Like this is just an excuse to say this. We need to invent like the Dune force field, you know, so that basically if somebody uh, bombs us that's or tries to shoot us, button. yeah, 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 right, then we're fine. Um, that's a you know I just wanted to say that. So basically, yeah. um, so with respect to that, like that's a that's a thing. Anyone who's interested in doing something revolutionary for the world, please create the Dune force field. <laughs> um, and then uh, um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know, I know what you're getting at. And, and in part, you know, the whole Bitcoin fixes this is a convenient way of saying it fixes a whole hell of a lot. So stop having such a narrow view of what you think it fixes. But I mean, in, in a sense, everything affects everything, or at least things that are <laughs> things that are highly instrumental or integral to our life, like money, like the notion of God, like our family, like our body there's no things that they aren't really connected to, right? And, and so, so when you, and in Bitcoin's case, when you change the logic of violence in that way, as you said, and when you insert a different fundamental, you know, base layer of value expression and exchange, and when you, as a result of doing that, align, create more healthy, fair incentives in a society, like there are so many downstream effects of that, that we, you know, we, we probably couldn't even conceive of them all if we sat down for hours and days and tried to figure them all out. And to your point, like there's always going to be people that are just um, aggressive and and want to want to fuck shit up. I agree, but then you know you even have the case like, well, what 
attributes of a particular culture, a socioeconomic system, cause people to be more aggressive than they might otherwise be, or cause there to be more people that are aggressive uh, than there might otherwise be? And how much is that determined by the relative deprivation in a society, the amount of safety net, whether that comes from the state or whether that comes from strong communities and, and generational wealth, like all these things are so wrapped up in the answer to that question, which is why I think many of us ascribe an influence of Bitcoin on those questions, because yeah, they're still going to, we, we're never going to, well, you know, there are people that think Bitcoin will fundamentally over the course of time change our, our nature, and maybe that will be the case, but we're still going to have the, the monstrous impulse, the impulse to power, the impulse to violence and aggression. And that's good. You know, I, I think the whole point is to recognize that. And as we've been saying, train it, restrain it, know when to apply it and when not to apply it. That's, that's mastery. That's the, the bridging together of your, to use somewhat narrative metaphorical language to bring together the God and the human and figure out the proper balance between the two, but to bridge heaven and earth such that we're able to create some, you know, an optimized uh, existence for ourselves and for one another. And uh, so I, that will always exist, but I do think that the, the society that Bitcoin will foster will dramatically tilt those natural tendencies and, and motivations toward a, a, a better balance uh, generally speaking, you know, with, with all of our other drives and motivations. Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, I'm in love with Bitcoin for precisely that reason. Um, it, I mean, I, I feel good about it as far as uh, us going on an upward trajectory. And I, I agree. I even think that um, sort of, uh, you know, Bitcoin making its way into every, you know, just, just so eventually becoming the base layer of value, as you say, um, will also open up um, education to be a much better phenomenon than it's been, um, you know, and we can, we can go into that if you want. That excites me almost more than anything because I, yes. I'm, I'm yeah. such a dork for like, well, what is, what are human beings capable of and, and what is the best way to bring them up in the world such that they're in the best position to one, determine that for themselves. What is the thing of most greatest meaning that they want to devote themselves to and equip them as best as possible to actually go ahead and, and achieve it or accomplish it. And there's so much uh, room to improve from where we are. Like it, it's just, it's stunning to me how fucking horrible education is in, in our day and age. And there's so many, you know, and, and people are starting to innovate on this. Like you were involved in a startup and there's some, there's some good work starting to happen, but as people have more money, as the state is left less involved in education, as people recognize, as the technological tools emerge to make education more customized and more relevant and all that kind of stuff. I just think there's going to be an explosion and like our counterparts 50 years from now or hundred years from now will be like, unrecognizable like we're just we'll, they'll be maybe they'll be watching this and we'll just seem like we're like cavemen like doo, 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 like beating our chest you know just so stupid in comparison <laughs> i mean i wouldn't be so hard on us i think um i think that you know i think even if let's suppose that they make their way up to the top of a mountain that we've never reached right and i also believe i you know, I believe that the uh, human potential is unknown. I don't think we've ever come close to reaching it. You know, I think we're, we can go much farther. Um, 
that being said, I think they would still look back on the ancients with a kind of, um, you know, smile and passion. And I think we would be probably the, you know, part of the ancients, like the whole idea of being a modern, like, oh, those are the ancients. Like they went, they went like this and then they went way, way up, you know? Well, sure. Pre presumably right. they're, they're like, uh, <laughs> their humility and their character would be amplified as well. So I'm sure they would find the good in us and they'd sympathize with our situation. But <laughs> I think intellectually sure. and, and in all other you know, ways of applying capability, they'll probably be orders of magnitude ahead of us. Yes. I mean, look, here's, here's what I think. Here's what I think education should really be a facilitator for, right? Um, we keep thinking that it's about knowledge. I think in a way it's less so about that. The real, the real thing that I, I want in any education for my kids or for myself or for, you know, for anything is humor, is joy, is laughter. That is the thing that's missing, right? We have just a bunch of um, stodgy, stodgy, uh, um, what do I want to say? Like, you know, I wanted to say like professors, whatever, but just, you know, people who are in, they fossilize everything that they touch, right? Every piece of knowledge dies in their hands, right? Everything is deprived of its context, of its life, of its richness, of its nuance. And then everything, um, everything is totally just, just cut to pieces and not even vivisected, just dies. And um, it's just gross. And um, the lack of laughter in classrooms, right? The need for uh, there always to be this quote unquote order, which is just to say like the, the chaos and spontaneity of youth be reduced to um, a factory farm where industrial chickens are killed every year. It's just the saddest thing in the world, right? So um, it seems to me that that's, that's what's missing. That's the biggest ingredient. And once humor starts to get infused into things in a meaningful way, right? Like it's not just you, random YouTube videos one after the other, because that's, that's just a nihilistic application of humor. But when things are able to, when facts are able to come back to life and everything becomes a discovery again, which is what I thought was so great about the Socratic aspect. I don't think it's for everyone, but for those for whom, you know, it's meant to be, um, that is the joy of it, right? So you, you know, you, you read a text. Um, first, you, you know, like the way we did it was with middle school kids was first we spontaneously asked a question. So when is it the right time to betray a friend? When is it the right time to be angry, right? Grounded questions, forget about the civil war, right? The, a much better question to ask is, are people born equal or are they not? And if they're born unequal, in what ways are they unequal? Can that inequality be divided by sex, race, right? Ask these questions meaningfully, seriously, and then just let the kids riff, like whatever they say, whatever controversy, it doesn't matter. Just let the group work it out. Like, I think this, I think that this is wrong. This is right. And then you bring in a book, you bring in a text and it's challenging and you make them read it in class out loud with the group, sentence by sentence, break it down. What is this saying? Well, you know, what do you guys think of that? How does that relate to what we just talked about? You are, you know, and then they start to realize that these books are not only not inaccessible, but that they came up with 90% of those ideas in 55 minutes. So, you know, you ask a question, kids will spontaneously arrive at a whole series of conclusions. Like Plato talks about that question. Aristotle talks. You guys just open that up as sixth graders. It's, you know, it's like, these are all, you know, in a way, like these, so many of these books are books written for youth, like the Iliad, the Bible, they're all books written for children and they're children's books, right? Like these are things that you inculcate in children at a young age. So these are all questions kids have immediately. So you um, put them all together, you make them have this discussion about the text, and then you, you really grapple with um, 
you know, yeah, you just grapple with them. And then you don't have to have a pre-made curriculum that gets iterated on once a year. If I went up to any techie and I was like, okay, write code, I'm going to come back to you in a year and then you can iterate on it again. You know, you'd be, you'd never survive. Like you need to ship things out every two weeks. There's a reason for that. We need to iterate all the time. Like you don't go plant seeds in a farm and then come back the next year to pick the shit up. Like that's ridiculous. So why is our curriculum only iterating on, you know, being iterated on once a year? So when it, when it comes to education, you have to iterate on it almost daily. Like the kids spontaneously go, you know what? This text makes me think of a horror story. I really want to read something in horror. This is a really scary question. You know, this thing, I want to get the thrill of that. Or, you know, this question makes, you know, makes the teacher think of, um, you know, like when is, when is it the right time to be angry? Makes them think of something in Shakespeare when initially he did something in Borges, but the two are really interconnected. Well, then why would I keep going down the road of Borges? Let's switch tack. Let's go pull up this other, this other text and talk about it tomorrow. So when you start to do that, kids realize that they're actually engaged in their own educational process. Then they start to engage even further. And you can do that online, right? Um, you don't have to do that in person. I think it's much better in person, but it is possible to do it online. So um, that's sort of the core. I mean, there's more to the program, but that's that's the core idea that, that we really, we saw work. It worked. Um, you know, they were highly engaged. They were laughing all the time. They were all working out, you know, conflict resolution on their own, you know? Um, that's like, that's truly what's missing. You know, it's, it's knowledge has to come alive and then it has to come alive with people you care about. And then more than that, you have to be able to laugh at things. Um, mm. um, and you see that spontaneously in every, you know, every jujitsu place I've ever walked into, there's a lot of laughter. Like people are just, you know, cracking up, they're cracking jokes, they're, um, you know, everybody, you know, for the most part, people are kind to each other and so on. Um, so those are, those are spaces where, you know, that's, that's how we come alive. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. very well, well said, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned, I'm not sure if it was in your writing or your discussion with Alex and I'm going to bring it up because I think you brought it up and I think you're public with it. So I don't feel uh, sheepish about it, but if, if there's anything you don't want to discuss, discuss, obviously we don't have to, but you know, we, we've been talking this whole time about <clears throat> your upbringing and generally how people are brought up <clears throat> and educated and what's inculcated into them in terms of character and virtue and morality and all of these things and how their life experiences, you know, cause certain things to be diminished or amplified or brought out of them or, or cause them to be withdrawn. And I think your life experiences had led you in 2016 to be in a very challenging psychological situation let's say and uh i'm just curious how what precipitated that but more importantly what allowed you to pull yourself out of that challenging circumstance and you know turn into the what seems to be highly impressive individual you know that you are today um i went i, I did go through some hard stuff it was like uh i would say 20 2013, 2014 to 2015, 16, maybe. Um, well, um, I want to I want to sort of lay out a little bit more context uh, about my life, just to just to preface it, right? Sure. So, um, first, you know, imagine being five or six or seven, and then, you know, 
you're a kid just walking around with your mom and then everywhere you go, you interpret for her, you know what I mean? Or you go with your dad, you know, he, he often, biological father often spoke for himself, but um, there were times when I would need to jump in. And um, the response you get when you sign is like being a hot girl in Miami. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you, you know, everybody takes note of you. You're a prodigy. You're the cutest thing in the world. You, you know, oh my God, you're going to get all the, you know, it's just like, it's, it's outrageous. Um, The amount of attention that I got as a five, six, seven year old was otherworldly. And, um, and then you're also like the, you're the only child, you're the center of your mom's existence. You will never, ever, 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 no matter how many spotlights are on you, be able to replicate that kind of attention again. Never. There's no way. Um, if I became Elon Musk tomorrow, it would still never match like whatever that was at five. And, um, and then, you know, the other side of that is that um, I like to think of every sense as basically a form of touch, right? So your eyes are touching whatever space that they have access to. Um, and then your ears are basically your eyes where your eyes aren't looking. So if you don't have them, then everything is going to be a surprise to you all the time right? Everything that's outside your field of vision, total surprise. Somebody touches you, total surprise. Never heard them walking up to you. Um, You have to wrap your head around just how existentially shocking that is. Every minute of every day, you never know that something is behind you. A whole world could be going on. And if you don't feel the vibration of the sound, it's happened and you didn't know it existed. So, um, So if you're the child of that phenomenon, you have to be letting them know you're like the, you know, you're like the, uh, you have to, you have to like be in touch with them all the time. Or if you want to communicate to them from behind a, you know, behind a door, but you can't get out, you know, you're just hearing them call to you over and over again until you go and, and get to the door. So the, the prodigy mixed with the pressure, does that make sense? Like it was, it was, it's a very high pressure experience, especially when you're a kid who's, I mean, I was very much a daydreamer. You know, I was very much kind of uh, like I wanted to be alone a lot of the time and just sit there and um, and fantasize, as it were, like create create worlds. And then when I wasn't doing that, I was bossing kids around. Um, I don't know if that's because of the you think you're a prodigy or that's you know dispositional. I'm not sure, but you know, either way, that was sort of my my character. Um, so so when you're young and you're um, you know, you flying to Kuwait to meet ministers and you're 21 years old and you're pitching them a project or you're, you know, flying to Dubai or you're meeting the king of, you know, the emir of Kuwait. I say king because, you know, people don't know what an emir is, but an emir is basically the high king of Kuwait. Um, and you're, you're having a discussion with him there. That all sounds really cool, but it's actually the same thing. It's, it's actually, you know, the same, you know, the prodigy in the place and then the pressure, with, with your mom, right? Like the, that tension had just been stretching on for so many years. And in between there was this very kind of ugly and difficult divorce. And, um, uh, you know, you can't take it anymore. There just comes a place where you're like the, the, you're, it's almost like your, your hand is on, um, is like holding on a precipice. And then your other hand is like gripping a twig on the ground. And you're like trying to stretch to like meet both things. It's, it's, you know, you, I, I just, I mean, I guess the easiest way to put it is I, I kind of, um, I lost hope that I could get a, ever get out of that pressure that I could ever reorient myself in such a way that I could, I could deal with this thing. And, um, you know, suicide was very much a, a thing, you know, on my mind, uh, constantly. And, um, it was very, it was a very hard thing. Um, 
So I, I think, how did I get out of that? Um, one was I managed to, to finagle my way to time. I needed time for myself, right? Um, you know, a wound keeps getting scratched, it gets so big, and then eventually you can see the bone. You know, at some point you gotta be like, all right, let's just stop scratching. So I had to get out of the situation, right? In, in that case, I had to get off my out of my cage, right? I had to get out of the environment, which also meant letting go of the idea that, you know, you're a prodigy, that the world centers around you, that, you know, like, because the pressure, you needed, you needed the prodigy to validate, to rationalize the pressure. And then when you don't have, you know, when you have to give, give up the pressure, you also have to give up the idea of being a prodigy. Otherwise you'll just go back to the pressure, right? right. So it's, you have to just let go of all of that and then say, okay, um, I'm just me, you know, like I don't live in a tower. I don't live in a tower looking down on everybody and me, you know, and um, um, that's a very hard thing to accept, actually, I think. Um, you know, I have doubts the same way everybody has doubts. I have this the same way, you know, I, I have lazy days where I do nothing the same way a lot of people do. Some people don't, I guess, you know, but I do. Um, and I have to, you know, acknowledge like the rhythm of my body. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I think I'm more of a sprinter, right? So like relax and then sprint, 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 and then take a day off. Sort of, sort of like that. Um, some people are marathon runners, et cetera. Um, um, so Alice Miller was a really great um, light, you know, way out. I recommend her work, uh, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Um, she very much outlined what I think a lot of people go through. And she's very good at that. And then um, Nietzsche was very helpful. Um, um, yeah, Nietzsche was very helpful, I would say. Uh, Twilight of the Idols, if you would like to start with something, that's kind of a summation of his whole philosophy. You don't see how he got there, but he's clear in that. Um, other ways, in other books, he can be more, more obscure um, on purpose. <laughs> uh, and then um, I'm trying to think of others that were really helpful. Literature was very helpful. You know, Shakespeare was endlessly helpful, like Othello, feeling of the odd man out, Hamlet, you know, faking madness. Um, why? Because um, it helped you relate to yourself in a more healthy manner or that's it, it. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get out of your own head. Like, you know, that every good piece of literature, I think in a way is, is self-help, right? You just get to sit in, I mean, the irony of a sign language interpreter wanting to get out of his own head, but, mm. but you know what I mean, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, your, your goal is to try to sit in this other, this, this other person's world, this other person's life. And, and then you start to see, you know, if something is very well said, you can internalize it. And then you have a frame of reference in your own mess of thoughts to sit back on. You're like, right, no, this is, you know, these verses, they really speak to me. And I think that's part of what, does, you know, music does so well, right? If you have a good piece of music, it, you, can, you can sort of sit on it as in a chair in your own mind in this sort of torrent, this crazy wind. Um, and, and, you know, you really need that other times, you know, you have a plank, you can walk across, it becomes more stable, like a floor, because you, you hear something like there are all kinds of metaphors, I think, like, uh, um, that, that literature and music help, help orient you toward. Um, so, um, so that's really, that's really what helped. And then of course, you know, the biggest thing, I was always very lucky to have friends and, um, a few who, who really understood because they had already, they were going through or they had already gone through it, right? They also had deaf parents. And I think, you know, I only, I only really have, I would say, um, one friend who has deaf parents that I'm very, very close with. Um, 
but others were able to understand by analogy or understand by context. And, and that's, you know, you really need that. You really need to know that somebody else can, can genuinely relate. And you can, you don't, uh, you know, like the great thing about relating paradoxically is that you get to talk about it less, right? The subtext is there. So you can just talk about other stuff and then you're free. You're just, a, mm. you're free to, to go be yourself um, instead of getting stuck and mired in. So eventually I, uh, you know, I pulled out the stuff I was ashamed of, the stuff I was afraid to talk about or that was difficult to talk about. And, um, and then eventually I, you know, there are some things I'm okay with, you know, never needing to say again. And I think that's also a great thing. You don't have to overshare as it were. Um, I think that's a temptation uh, for some, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, just, just finally, finally sitting inside my own life and saying, you know, this is, this is okay. I'm okay. You know? And then um, you can now just live. Like you can, you can grieve over what's missing, be grateful for what you have and had, and then go live out the rest of your life, whatever that, whatever that looks like. Yeah. I know um, subsequent to that, you spent some time, I think in the Amazon and uh, ayahuasca stuff. And <clears throat> anyone who listens to this show will know that I'm uh, very interested in that uh, area of things. Was that an aspect of, of trying to reconcile some of those things? Or was that purely out of curiosity and, and that kind of stuff? Or how, how did that impact uh, your perspective, I guess, as the right way to frame that question. Yeah. 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 So definitely, um, needed, I, you know, there was a point I was, I was writing a book about what it's like to have deaf parents. That book is, I want to say it's finished, but I'm going to go back and, um, go through, you know, yet another round. Uh, it just, it seems <laughs> tedious. Like it. It's okay. I mean, it just is what it is, you know, uh, <laughs> good attitude, but, uh, good attitude. Yeah. 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 It just is what it is. Um, I'll be, I'll be glad, you know, I'll be glad that I did it when it's done but not when I'm doing it. Does that make sense? Totally. totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so yeah, I, I just, I ran, I went through some snags at that point and that was, yeah, for sure. 2018, uh, 2017, I was like, I can't do this. There's something wrong. Like I just can't write this anymore. There were just some things I had to work out. So yeah, I did, you know, what anybody would do. I flew to the Amazon and I <laughs> tried ayahuasca um, with a cool group and um, it was great. I mean, it was, it was very meaningful. Um, not a party drug, right? A very serious thing. It's not even a drug, I would say. I think, I think it qualifies as a medicine. And um, I think I said this also to, to Svetsky that, that, you know, these aren't things that solve your problems. Like you still have to do the work. It's just that when you're in there for seven hours, sometimes it can feel like you're gone for 10 years. And that's, mm. you know, sometimes it, it can facilitate and, and help, you know, it'll, it'll give you sort of a leg up and other times it will really try to tear you apart and expect you to be strong enough not to be torn apart. So, you know, you never know what you're going into. Um, um, I, it was the first time I'd ever felt like I was home. So that's how I like to phrase it. Um, very, very meaningful to me. And um, I think the very last time I did ayahuasca, I, you know, I was expecting. Need I say more? And then I think the. Hold on, hold on. I, I, you you said I was expecting. The last time I did, I was, I was expecting, and then you totally froze for like 20 seconds. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I see. Um, so basically I, uh, I was expecting it to be hell because the night before I had gone through 
hell. It was just terrible. It was a total yeah. disaster. Um, so, you know, you expect the second night, it'll just be hell again. So you go in, you just, you're going to deal with that. You'll be fine. Um, and, uh, and then instead it took me a totally different way. Um, and it was bliss. I mean, it was the sort of, um, the oneness that a lot of people talk about and it Mm -hmm. was, it was very beautiful and, um, you know, never like never go a day without dancing you know, something to that effect, like never, never wait. Like if you didn't dance that day, you know, you wasted the day. Um, Cause I think, I mean, really, I mean, I think, I think that's the, I think that, you know, that was sort of what I took away from that. It was, it was very, um, the only word I can experience it is, 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 or describe it with is uh, blissful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, it, it took some time to kind of adjust back to normal living from that. Um, took a couple of years actually, but I, I think after that, it was, you know, from that experience, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Just from, I was there for a month and I lost 20 pounds and I did what's called a dieta. So basically, you know, the goal is for them to starve you and, (laughs) um, (laughs) you drink meat and salt and and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Um, so I, I lost like, yeah, I lost a lot of weight and, um, and, uh, did ayahuasca in between and it was very, you know, it was a very valuable experience. Um, yeah. but what took you, I mean, <clears throat> when you come out of that experience, obviously there's a lot of integration to be done in many cases, these experiences can open your mind up to an entirely different experience of consciousness that you heretofore had not even known existed and not even just that, but that it's one that can be so beneficially integrated if done correctly. And if the experiences are approached properly and all that kind of stuff. So what was it that required so much time to, you know, get you to a point where you felt you had integrated them properly? Yeah. I think, um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. That's okay. Um, I think. I think. Speaking honestly, I wanted to say something like, "The modern world is incommensurate with happiness," and I think there's something to that. And I think having to adjust from being at this kind of high, high and the low, low, like dated, you know, back to back. Um, like, you know, it's very hard to, it's very hard to just be however you are in the city. So I can't imagine someone just suddenly crying because they felt like crying in a subway and then laughing because they suddenly felt like laughing. Does that make sense? Like the world is very, we're well, you very see lots of, of crazy shit on subway, but I get your point that like yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, right. the type of environment to, that welcomes <laughs> or permits that in normal 
in normal people or something. Yeah, I really shouldn't have picked the subway. I should have just picked like, you know, whatever, like a convention, you know, yeah, but, um, yeah. but, but it's, it's just something like um, we, we're very much a paved road society, right? That is to say, um, there are these paths you take, this is how you do things. And when you don't do them, it's very, you know, and there's a reason for that. It's not like there's no purpose or, you know, keep the man keeping us down or something like that. But um, it is very hard to just be spontaneous in that world. There's so much that has to go on internally and not externally. Whereas if you spend your time in the Amazon, um, more or less alone, you're moving to your own tune and you might find that you, your tune is very much, even a very strange tune, you know, you mm -hmm. might not be used to it. And um, so going back to going back into normal life where people expect normal things from you, or even for you to say normal sentences, you know, <laughs> you may not be tempted to say a normal sentence. Like you may be tempted to walk up to someone at a coffee shop rather than a subway, um, uh, rather than on the subway. Um, and just, you know, ask some really deep existential question. Like that person looks like they should ask, like be asked that. And so you go ask it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that works out well. And other times people are very freaked out. Like, you know, what are you doing? And if you're just out of ayahuasca, you don't really care what the reaction is. Like, you don't give a damn. You're just going to ask the question. They're going to freak out. And then you're going to move on with your life and order a latte or something. And then spit out the latte because it's way too sweet. But, um, you know, like, or whatever it is, but, um, yeah, so I think it's just, it takes time for you to sort of um, redevelop a rhythm that's at least mildly somewhat commensurate with the rest of society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense. Um, well, man, I'm, uh, I think I'm good. Is there anything else that you wanted to discuss, explore, get off your chest, anything like that? I don't want to take up too much of your time here. So uh, anything else before we shut it down? such a great chat and it's it's great to meet you this is our first time officially meeting so i'm really glad we got to just hash a whole bunch of stuff out yeah yeah me yeah. too man and i look yeah. forward to doing another one of these or meeting you at a, a conference or something sometime and you can uh, check your nietzsche notes and we can break back into some of those questions that we put a pin in here today let's do it let's do it all right brother well, look thanks right. again for the time uh, great to connect with you and uh, take care we'll talk again soon see you. thanks bro. all right see you brother <laughs>
Limp, 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 limp,